Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor, Chief Executive of the charity Garden Organic, and later I'll be joined by my colleagues Chris Collins and Emma O'Neill. As the year draws to a close, Chris and I will take time to reflect, celebrating our successes and commiserating our failures. We'll be hearing from Anthony McCluskey from Butterfly Conservation, who shares his advice on how to support butterflies and caterpillars within your garden, giving us food for thought as we plan for 2024. And Chris and I will be joined by Garden Organics head gardener, Emma O'Neill, to answer your questions. We're talking about wildlife-friendly hedges, leek moth, and improving poor soil in greenhouses. This episode is sponsored by Viridian Nutrition, Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils and balms. Their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. To find out more, visit viridian-nutrition.com. Now before we start, I just wanted to take a minute to explain who we are to any new listeners. This podcast is created and shared by Garden Organic the UK-wide charity for organic growing. We've been around for over 65 years, supporting biodiversity through organic growing and composting, seed conservation, science and research. We share our knowledge through things like this podcast to help more people succeed with organic and sustainable growing. Our work is primarily funded by donations and our members. So if you enjoy listening and want to help us continue to produce this podcast, we would be hugely grateful if you'd consider joining as a member, buying membership as a gift, or simply making a donation. Even a few pounds will really help. You can find out more on our website, gardenorganic.org.uk. Well, Chris, gosh, what a year we've all had. It's uh, amazing to think we're here we are in December, ready for our chat, and here we are sitting in the tea room, basically. Mm. This is what we call the breakout room here at Wright and Organic Gardens. And this is where we all come for our cup of tea and our elevenses. But actually, at this time of year, it turns into the kind of headquarters for the distribution of the heritage seed from the Heritage Seed Library. So there's an extraordinary contraption that takes up about half the room, which is made up of pigeonholes. And each pigeonhole contains the seeds all ready to go. So we've had we've had lots of volunteers counting out the seed into all the seed packets. The seed packets are properly labelled. They're batched. It's an absolute labour of love, but it's also amazingly efficient. It really is. Some of the seeds that are already in the pigeonholes, we've got Sunset Runner Bean, a couple of dwarf French beans, one called Black Valentine and the other called Magpie. Have you ever grown any of those? I haven't, They're... no, but I'll be giving them a go next year. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We've got the Mayor of Leicester Pea and then there's a squash called Bubble and Squeak. Well, how would you not grow that? That's I know. Awesome, it? It's absolutely fantastic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. isn't it? I have to say, I was in here earlier for the cup of tea and it was so industrious in here. Um, bless the volunteers. Like, they come in oh. and they get their residence and they work and it's, you know, it really is a sight to behold, Fiona. It yeah, really is. We, couldn't do it. we couldn't do any of our work without our mm. volunteers. It's phenomenal. We have 500 volunteers who do all sorts of different things for Garden Organic. All around the country all as well. All around the country. Yeah. It's amazing. But the ones you're talking about today were very much dedicated I've to learned them. as well, they do love a biscuit. They well. do they love do, a biscuit. They love a biscuit, mate. They do, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the whole charity sector is founded on tea and biscuits, isn't it? If you want to have a go at growing some heritage varieties yourself, then you would need to join the Heritage Seed Library. So you go on our website and, and join Garden Organic and then make sure you, you tick the box to join the Heritage Seed Library. It's worth doing it right now because... On the 8th of December, as long as you're a member, then our seed list for 2024 mm-hmm. goes live. 
And what that means is you can get hold of seed that you can't get anywhere else. A great Christmas present, maybe. Amazing Christmas present. Absolutely. Amazing Christmas present. And then you can be part of a whole community of, of people growing amazing seed and making sure that we we have genetic diversity in our back gardens, in our allotments, in our growing spaces. It's really important that these vegetables are grown, you know, seeds for sowing, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is. And, I, and I've got to say as well, I mean, it's a bargain, you know, for what, what you pay for out in the big world to this is just, it really is great Christmas present or just a treat for yourself. Absolutely. So that's one Christmas present idea. Um, we'll probably talk about Christmas mm. gifts in, in a minute. But first of all, what jobs have you got on your list for this month, Chris? Well, I've kind of got my eyes on the wildlife, really. It's a hard time of year, for mm, especially the small definitely. birds. I get so many coming to the balcony with my little stick-on feeder, so I make sure they've got water. I make sure they've got food. I don't feed them in the spring and summer. We talked about this before, but this time of year, I keep an eye out for them. Also, on the allotment, I like to put little habitat piles in, you know, somewhere for all the, the creepy crawlies to, to stash away. I don't cut down my herbaceous. So just leaving little habitats here and there to make sure the wildlife wake makes it through the winter, okay? I can tell you um, I've got a very industrious squirrel and I looked out my window the other day and this it was just extraordinary sort of squirrel acrobatics <laughs> getting at the my neighbour's bird feeder, which is one of those bird feeders that is, you've got a stick in the ground yeah. and then you've got hooks coming off the top of the stick and then you've got the bird feeders on top and then each of the little bird feeders had a had a roof over the top it's all supposed to be squirrel proof isn't yeah, it no, nothing squirrel proof yeah. well where i am at home you can see the tree line just off the balcony and they come to the edge of the branch it must just be a little bit too far so they never make it they to the don't balcony quite make it to your yeah balcony. so I, I tease them i sit on the balcony going no, they're gonna happen <laughs> isn't that interesting because they they can really jump yeah, can. i'm surprised they haven't managed it yet i don't know where there's a lot of magpies and stuff about and crows maybe there's a little bit of intimidation going on i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so you're gonna put a bit of food out are you, are you doing other things in terms of you know trying to offer sort of places for shelter or anything like that yeah certainly certainly your habitat piles is a good one not being too tidy especially on the allotment let making sure they've got crevices and, and and bits i've got a lot of stack of bricks at the bottom i'll leave them there and yeah just making sure i'm not being over fussy basically and leaving that and also water making sure there's water out as well have you found this year i mean we've had a really mild autumn yeah. You know, have have you found this year that there's been an awful lot of pests and diseases? Well, certainly. I mean, I've got cannas, which are a tropical plant, which I put in the ground because London's obviously quite mild. They're all coming into flower. They're flowering. They're full of buds. That is really not right at all. Mm. That shows I've had no frost at all. Temperature's been hovering around 13, 14 degrees. So I'll put a jacket on and I'll go out and I'm sweating. As I walk down the road, I'm still, you know, I'm still, I should go out in a jumper or a cardigan still. So I found that I went into my brassicas. I've got them in a big cage, netted cage. Otherwise, uh, the pigeons get at them. I, I, I went in there and I touched the cabbage and a white fly flew off. Oh, it. my goodness. And I've got a lot of problems with keel slugs as well, which are the tiny, small subterranean slugs. And they get in between the leaves of the cabbages. Right. And all of that would be checked by a decent frost, basically. That would, that would cut that back. So. What will happen is further down the line, I've got problems going. If it stays this mild, I'll have problems with pests that will reach right into next spring. So I really, really want to see one of those deep silver frosts on their lot because that would help me out immensely. But it is important to see that things, you know, 40 years I've been gardening next year. This is my anniversary Mm -hmm. of the four decades. I've never known winters as mild as this, Mm -hmm. you know, where everyone's opinion of anything is in terms of climate. This is quite unusual, I think. But just going back to your point about, you know, looking out for the wildlife this month, um, 
uh, have you got sort of any techniques for encouraging the kind of wildlife that might help you deal with something like this? Yes, well, life? my neighbour, Peter, I'll give him a name check, is an old Irish lad who's my neighbour on the allotment. Uh, some hedgehogs were spotted recently on the allotment site, so I um, well, I advised him and he built a hedgehog house, you know, with a long sort of corridor going in the back. And we've got, he's put a camera in there, we've got two hedgehogs in there. Oh. So I think that's a major, major coup. You I, might I, have some babies. Yeah, maybe. I hope so. And we, we'll get very emotional about it. I can tell you <laughs> well, both of us. Right. And so hopefully, you know, they'll get out and they'll, they'll, they'll eat. They'll, they'll keep those slug levels down. They're an important part of the ecosystem. They're near the top of the food chain and you want them there. And so, yeah, I hope they prove to be a success. So you really just want to be encouraging that ecosystem, that food chain to be live and thriving on your, on your growing spaces because then the pests become a, nat- is a natural balance to it, which is what we're after. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. At this time of year, thinking about Christmas, thinking about what we might be wanting to give people, that's one of my jobs at the moment is uh, trying to get my <laughs> Christmas act together. This year I want to give lots of plants. I want to, you know, plant yeah. some. So my plan is to to do the standard, you know, the, the, old, the old stuff that, you know, my mum used to do, you know, where you, you would... Uh, You'd plant the hyacinth bulbs. Chrissy sell hyacinths. Chrissy hyacinths. With the see-through jars, you can see the roots. <laughs> That's right. But actually, I think I think there's nothing nicer than a, a, a pot, a small pot, and lots of tiny little bulbs, like, you know, particularly crocuses. I just think they, they look amazing. I mean, I know you force them indoors, mm. but... You know, sometimes just bringing the spring forward, it, golly, it makes a difference. But also you can naturalise them afterwards. Exactly. Once they go over, you can make sure you go out and you put them in the garden. So you've got a long-term gift to enjoy for many, many years. Yeah, exactly. I've never had anybody turn their nose up at that sort of a <laughs> gift. I think that's a great a great. Well, if they did, I would give them to one next year. It's yeah. <laughs> off the list, mate. It's off the list. <laughs> what about you? Any planty well, ideas? Yeah, you know, in recent years, it's been very trendy. The terrarium has made yes. this huge comeback. And, yes. uh, well, I, I've sort of made them all through my... Garden in life. In fact, I used to make them in Japan and sell them in the shop and quite a large amount of money, if yes. I remember rightly. So I, well, I love the idea of a mini rainforest. So mostly all recycled stuff. So I use an old fish tank. And what I'll do with that old fish tank is I'll put a layer of gravel in as a, as a water table and I'll put uh, peat-free compost in with a bit of bark mixed through it. I'll undulate that so it's a little landscape. I might forage for a few rocks, put them in there, and then get some sustainable moss and coat that over. And then I'll plant house plants like orchids or some ferns, maybe some pipers. Um, Fitonias, and you have a little mini rainforest there, and that could go on the sideboard uh, at home as a gift to someone you care about very deeply, and um, hopefully that makes them happy. It's a gorgeous gift. Yeah. I mean, how about that? To be given a Chris Collins terrarium, <laughs> I think that's amazing. Well, it's difficult, isn't it, these days, because we're so consumer-based. That What do you buy people? We seem to have got everything, haven't we? So like the bulbs and naturalise them, you want something that is interactive, that's going to last and and it'll remind you, hopefully, of a good Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, I've got friends who are really good about things like, you know, making candles and things for people. But what they do is, is, is they go foraging around and find old pots and just reuse yeah, them. Yeah, I think and, there's you know, something about a personal touch where nicer. you haven't just gone into a shop, bought something, wrapped it up, and gone have it. Well, you know, it's not. It should be much more of a process than that. I think. Yeah, yeah. you've got to start a bit early. That's the thing. You've got, <laughs> yeah, you've got to think yeah, ahead, yeah, yeah. haven't you? But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Of course, Christmas is the time that makes us all look back a bit as well. You know, back on 2023. It's a big question I'm about to ask you, Chris. I hope you're ready for this. Has something or somebody really inspired you this year? Well, it's, um, you know, being a gardener, like you, there's inspiration everywhere. I always find them, especially in the nature of our jobs, because we meet a lot of people. And so we're at the flower shows. You always, But I think maybe Kirsty Wilson stands out to me a little bit when I interviewed her on the podcast. And the reason is very simple. One, she's very knowledgeable, incredibly knowledgeable horticulturist, which, you know, we, we need more of those, I think. Um, and she's very upbeat and enthusiastic. But I think there's an inspiration to young women maybe thinking of coming into horticulture. She's, she's right up there. So I found that meeting her and that interview very uplifting. 
Um, so uh, bless her, you know, yeah. she's doing great work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was lucky enough, shook her hand when I, when I met her at the Schoon Palace um, garden show, which was uh, back in June. You know, she's a very engaging person. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. Mm. And Beechgrove, you know, what a show. It's a terrific Well, it's full show. of uh, horticulture. Yes. You know, it, it doesn't drift off too much into the glossy magazine sort of format. It's You learn a lot when you watch Beechgrove, I think. You do. And also, um, I have to say, for those of us down south, it's very inspiring because I think that the conditions in parts of Scotland do actually force you to be really really creative but also actually incredibly knowledgeable so i think you pick up all sorts from, yeah. from watching that program wherever you live in the country i agree yeah and so what about you fiona who's inspired you this year well i have to say i was so lucky to go and interview pam corbin i've had a lifelong struggle with jam making it just <laughs> it didn't come sort of easily to me I, I don't know somehow i never sort of picked it up growing up my sister seemed to be very very good at it and I, and therefore i just sort of let her do it but actually i was determined to get on top of it myself and also because you know when you grow your own stuff it's great to be able to preserve it and have it over the winter but yeah I didn't have a lot of confidence around it there I was in the kitchen of this kind of extraordinary jam scientist really I would call her that I mean she really is she's a phenomenal encyclopedia of knowledge just finding out about how they set up their own jam factory and the, the kind of jam they used to make and how they used to hand pot everything you know so everything it was no machinery going on you know this was this was proper proper jam making also realizing yes there is a science to it you know jam isn't easy but on the other hand once you know how you can adapt it to so many ways and the other thing I'll stop going on about it in a minute but I was obviously absolutely thrilled uh, to meet her but the other thing that hadn't really occurred to me before was how useful jam is in cooking so it's not just something it's not just on the toast it isn't just yeah. on the toast you know use it for sauces use it for gravies it's you a know. staple like a foundation food almost is it absolutely yeah. thinking of it in a in a savory context mm. as well as in a in an afternoon tea context so yeah I, that, so that have that you was got a, a house full of jam I, do you know what I had I counted up I made 27 pots did you really <laughs> since, since I know I your her. guests are getting on Christmas yeah. morning <laughs> Yeah, no, well, I must admit, I've worked my way through a fair amount of it already. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of, you know, your own gardening this year... What have been your big successes? Well, I've had, I mean, the balcony was outstanding this year. Oh, right? Even it? if I say so myself. Yes, well, like, yeah, I'm asking you to say so yourself. <laughs> it was amazing. And, uh, and, um, and also, I mean, I'm just so engaged with my spaces because it's such a, I'm busy with my job, so it's my private, my outlet. But I think if I had to name a couple of things... Chilies and aubergines on the balcony. Um, long purple aubergine. I just had um, inundated with those. Most people find they get two or three aubergines. I had like I must have had up to sixty or seventy of them. Sixty I, or seventy. Yeah, I mean, I got three, and I was proud honestly, of that. Honestly, plants were hanging with them, and uh, and I made this parmigiana, which is like yes. where, you, where you roast them and you put them on a tomato sauce, and then you put a layer of ricotta and a layer yeah, of parmesan, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that was just out of this world. Yeah. Chilies as well. I, I got right near the end of the season. I got lots. I grew lots of different fl- uh, cultivars of chili. I got loads of them, and then I dried them off on the windowsill, um, and then I flaked them, and I and I've got them in jars. And I don't think I'll run out of chili till the earth uh, two thousand and ninety one. <laughs> Oh, well, I should be making chilli jam with that. Yeah, you should. I should bring you some. I I know. We need to collaborate. (laughs) I did quite well with my tomatoes this year. It's the first year I've had a proper decent tomato crop. I've had a bit of success, but but this year it it was great. There was a sense of continual supply um, through the summer. And actually, to the point where I'm afraid, right towards the end, I... 
I sort of slightly turned my back on them because I thought they'd finished. Mm. And um, I got on with other things. I went out to the greenhouse a couple of weeks later and and I'd missed a load. And at that point was when I discovered that my aubergines, I thought I'd only got one. Mm. And then I found two more. But that was really, really, really late. Yeah, it was a late sort of for the sort of med crops. It was the Mediterranean, the sort of warmer crops. They came Really late. We were saying that we weren't going to get we any. Were, yeah, yeah. We? Yes, I and then we just that. had this massive flurry at the end, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I've enjoyed every minute of it. To be honest with you, uh, have you had a dismal failure this year, Chris? No, apart from, um, I mean, that sounds a bit arrogant. No, because <laughs> no. um, I'm just lining up mine, <laughs> yeah. frankly. No, I, I think the only thing that sticks in my mind is I. I ordered wallflowers online, and I got them posted to me. I, I really like a wallflower in my bedding with my bulbs. And they came through the post and they, they weren't up to much. So I think I should have thought about that a little bit more. I planted them anyway. I persisted and they, and they looked thoroughly miserable. After oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, and did they, so, did they flower? Or? Uh, no, they'll be, if they were to flower, they'd flower in the spring, but I don't think they're going to stay there. They look mm. at, I think I'll, I shall hoik them out. And so that feels like a bit of a failure to me. Oh, okay. So maybe you should have talked to some of your friends and neighbours instead. Yes, and maybe, yeah. Seed from or them. gone to the organic catalogue or something. Yes, <laughs> maybe. Indeed, indeed. Well, I'm afraid my failure was that I fell hugely behind this year. We all say that, don't we? But I did kind of let it go. But actually what, what that did was it meant that I then had to spend time on stuff I didn't want to spend time mm. on. So if I'd actually kept on top of it, then I could have really indulged in the joy of gardening rather than the kind of just trying to well, keep you up, up with you it. You end up firefighting if you're yes. careful. I mean, it soon gets away from you. It doesn't, I mean, you only need to spend a few weeks away or be busy with work for a month and it, it, it kind of gets ahead of you. So I think it's important to remember, even if it does get to that point, it's about enjoying it, pottering and putting it right. Or it shouldn't be a stress. It should be a pleasure. I think that's, yeah. you know, even if it looks like, oh, blimey, I've, uh, I've let it get away from me. Just, you know, it's time outside, isn't it? And it's time. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. It is. But I think there's something about actually a, making sure that I put yeah. that time in because actually it's just if you're investing the time at the right part of the year then you're going to actually get yeah. that much more joy out of the rest of the year which is frankly what it's all about isn't it certainly and what what have you learned this year have you learned anything new I mean I know you know I, I you know I'm sure there isn't anything you could have possibly oh, I'm learned sure there's lots, lots, I'm sure there's lots <laughs> as a gardener you never stop learning well, some that's of the beautiful true. things about it but I well it's interesting chatting to Anthony McCluskey because uh, obviously he made that point about about um, uh, everyone concentrates on the butterfly and not necessarily on the caterpillar. And I have a, um, a problem with nettles right down the bottom of the allotment. And I normally sort of, sort of tidy them up and stuff. And I think I've learned, let that go, let that go. That's a brilliant place for caterpillars to thrive and hence mm. you get the butterfly. So little tips like that I'm always looking for. And that one just sticks out in my mind a little bit. It's true, isn't it? We don't think about the caterpillar. We think about the butterfly. And and actually, we're suspicious of caterpillars. We often think of a pest. They're yeah, to get rid they're going to be eating yeah, something. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. yeah, no, that is really, really true. And although I love a caterpillar, but I don't, I'm not very good at identifying them. I don't no. know what it's going to turn into. I think that's the point of it. What what he was saying about it is, is making sure you you you, you provide provisions and know what they are. You know, not every caterpillar is a pest. Always, you know, make sure you've got provisions for things and don't be too tidy and, and hasty and rip stuff out. Mm, absolutely. Well, we'll be hearing from Anthony McCluskey a bit later because that was your interview for this episode. So looking forward to hearing the full interview uh, in a few moments. I mean, I, I, I've been reflecting myself and I think the one thing I, I learned this year, and it's one of those things where I didn't really have enough faith to think that it would work, but I've treated the blanket weed in my pond with liquid barley straw. And I did it for a couple of months and I thought, oh, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. And then all of a sudden, like magic, there's no blanket weed in my pond. And I, I just didn't think it would work. I really didn't. And 
you know, I'm, I found liquid barley straw. It's not cheap, but I just put it in religiously every couple of weeks uh, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And I don't top up my pond with tap water at all. I only do with either a bit of rainwater from the water but or just let the rain do it for me. And there's been plenty of that of late, that's for sure. I didn't think it was possible to get on top of blanket weed. But that's good, isn't it? That means all the, all the wildlife in there is going to be thriving as well. And you're very good on the science behind why it works. When your pond goes all greeny, slimy like that, it's because there's a lot of nitrate buildup in the water. So what happens is the barley sucks the nitrate out of the water and basically starves the unwanted stuff of any food, basically. The sun creates the algae. If you compensate that by making sure the nitrates don't build up, then you'll have a clearer pond. Well, I better keep on top of it next year as well. But yeah, no, that was a, that was a joy this year to discover, definitely. Since again, we're sort of thinking ahead next year. If you've got any goals for 2024, go on, let's... Uh, yes. Let's 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 get ambitious. <laughs> As obviously I'm a plantsman, that's my sort of background, you know, from botanic garden. So I like to do a bit more soft landscaping, but I want to do a renaissance of my plant knowledge because you spend a lot of time in my younger years looking at plants and learning plants. And I've got this folder at home from when I was at Edinburgh, which is full of pressed leaves mm. of all these different plants that I dried in between blotting paper and then got sticky back plastic and sealed them all in this. It's very a work of Peter. art. It's, very oh, it's a work of art, mate, I tell you. Yeah, <laughs> if I could get every Blue Peter viewer making one of these, I'd be happy. But it's, I, I want to go back to, I want to renaissance of my plant knowledge. I've been doing it lately in the autumn. I've been doing a lot of looking at um, the autumn colours of trees, particularly in shrubs. So I want to re-engage with my plant knowledge, and I think that's quite a good, good ambition to have for 2024. It's a very good ambition indeed. And I recently was at a talk um, by John Anderson, who is Keeper of the Garden, uh, which is at the Savile Garden, which is situated in, in Windsor Great Park. But John, in this talk, was talking about how to engage with the apprentices coming through and how to keep people interested. And he said you have to observe and you have to touch and you have to feel the plants. And what he suggests is to every new apprentice that starts, that on January the 1st, they get their diary and they get a, get a paper diary and they go out into Savile Garden or into indeed into Windsor Great Park and they select three plants that day and they note down those plants or they go and find out. If they don't know what the plant is, they, they go and find out. And it's not just what it looks like, but it's what it feels like, the scent, what's the habit of the plant. And he recommends that every single apprentice does that for three plants a day. And then at the end of the year, they've got over a thousand plants. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, it's yeah, brilliant, it's isn't idea. it? Because it builds up so quickly. It does. And I think that it's important to say professionally, certainly, uh, you're not a gardener without your plant knowledge. And we lack um, horticulturists with good plant knowledge these days. We've done it. Yes. People just look at social media or, you know, I think that the actual learning, the physical learning of a plant and its habitat and its husbandry is what makes us the gardener. Yes, indeed. So now we're about to hear your interview, Chris, with Anthony McCluskey, who's based in Scotland. Um, and he works for an organisation called Butterfly Conservation. And I can tell this was a chat you really enjoyed. Yeah, it was a fascinating chat, Fiona. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're in for a treat today. I'm joined by Anthony McCluskey from the Butterfly Conservation Trust. Um, it's a big honour. Obviously, at Garden Organic, our concern about pollinators and all their importance in the natural world in our gardens is of a vital part. For us. Um, Anthony, welcome. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? You all right? You good? Yeah, yeah, I keep well, thank you. Good, working hard, no doubt. So I think the first question, maybe, the most important question, 
I think people like yourselves and uh, the Trust are, are unsung heroes. What does your organisation do? And, and uh, tell us a bit about that, how it got going and what it does now. Yeah, so I work for a charity called Butterfly Conservation and we've got uh, a remit to conserve butterflies and moths and our wider environment. So we know that butterflies and moths are really extremely important parts of the environment because they can impact on bird populations, they're good pollinators and things. So we are, we are a UK-wide charity and we want to conserve these species by working in the landscape, so working with farmers or in nature reserves, but we also want to work where people live, so in urban areas too, which is a large part of some of the roles that I've had at Butterfly Conservation, where we've been working with councils, for example, to make new meadows in parks or uh, encourage people to garden for butterflies as well. That's amazing. So real sort of like action, not words stuff, isn't it? You're out on the ground, is that right to say? Yeah, that's right, and it's it's really important that we we do the work because through our time at Butterfly Conservation, we've uh, we've got a uh, thousands of volunteers who actually record the butterflies they see and they count the numbers every year, and year on year those numbers are going down. So we know for sure that the numbers are mostly going down, and um, that's a large part of our work is to actually support those volunteers in gathering that information. But then it's our role to actually do something about it and take action. So your volunteers are really your eyes and ears of the populations of butterflies and moths in this country at the moment. So, yeah, they're observing and they're feeding you back that information. I think maybe this is a little way a bit of a silly question because everybody talks about um, making sure pollinators are okay, but what's so important about them? I know that's – I'm a gardener, I kind of know, but I think it's worth clarifying what's so important about butterflies and moths. Yeah, well, you mentioned pollination there, and they are quite good pollinators of of both wildflowers and of some of the crops that we eat. So a lot of it actually is done by moths. In the UK, there's over two and a half thousand species of moth. There's only about 60 odd species of butterfly. So a lot of the work actually goes on at nighttime when people can't see it, which is why we often don't think of them as being pollinators, because we simply don't uh, don't see it happening. Um, and, and there's more research now on that because people can look at, they can capture moths, they can study the pollen that's on their body and they can see that actually they are collecting pollen as they go about their business. Uh, there are some wildflowers which are only pollinated by moths as well because they have a certain shape which only moths can access. Uh, but then of course they're really important to the ecosystem, to the food web generally. Um, we know that they're caterpillars for example. At any given time in springtime if you look into something like an oak tree there will be probably millions of caterpillars inside there that will be good food for, for birds. And even in a small urban garden, uh, some research has found that it takes about 30,000 food items to raise one nest of blue tits. That's a single nest. That's mostly caterpillars or spiders or little grubs and things. So if we didn't have the uh, those butterflies and moths having their caterpillars, then we wouldn't see those birds which rely on them as well. So they're they're really important for those reasons. So there's that chain, that natural chain that is so important. Schools quite interest me because I've worked in schools a lot over the last 15 years. Do you find that they're really quite fertile ground for this kind of stuff? Yeah, no, I've never done any of the school work myself, but um, I know from colleagues and their reports and the things that they tell us, you know, they, they get a great deal out of it um, because the schools are, are often primary schools are at that age where kids are still interested in things and they're willing to give stuff a go. You know, so if you tell them you can grow a garden for butterflies, they'll believe you and they will do it and they'll go on and do it. And hopefully that stays with them. Um, and we also realise with teachers that they just don't have maybe the background or the time to learn about butterflies and moths themselves. It really helps if one of us can come in and have easy lessons for them and show them uh, what they can do uh, because teachers have enough to be doing. You know, they're they're 
time poor as it is. So I think, um, you know, we've been received with uh, ho- hopefully a good welcome in those places. Yeah, it sounds about right. I think um, the response you get from the educational environment is always positive and it's kind of the future, isn't it? It's kind of an area we need to hit. So I know that your charity is um, it launching a campaign called Wild Spaces. And one of the things I always worry about is uh, you can talk about uh, rewilding, but you're actually approaching it from all angles here. So can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so Wild Spaces is one of our new initiatives, and we've got an aim to make 100,000 new Wild Spaces in the UK by 2026. And to do that, we need to work with uh, a number of different audiences, maybe people who aren't our traditional audiences, so people living in towns and cities who might have a, a, a patch that they want to improve for wildlife. So it's really giving them the tools they need to do that. Um, and the key thing with Wild Spaces are that they have three main elements. So they have places for butterflies and moths to feed. So that's the adult stage, getting nectar, but also to breed. So having the caterpillar food plants for them and then to shelter. That's often the stage where they are spending the winter, maybe as a chrysalis in the ground. Um, And so that's about, like say, leaving leaves, for example, don't tidy up too much so that you're not disturbing those chrysalises through the winter. And we've got a number of different interventions. So as you mentioned with balconies, for example, if somebody's got a small balcony, we'll have a, a recommendation of the plants which will grow best in pots which can su- survive a bit of drought and uh, how people can make the best out of that small space similarly then if people have a like a community growing space or or an allotment how they can leave uh maybe ha- have a, a native hedge around it or leave some areas just uncultivated to help those species too is there reasons you can identify that these these moths and butterflies are declining yeah, um, so our most recent report found that over uh, over 80% of our butterfly species are in decline and a lot of our moths are in decline too. So again, we've got that evidence to show that they're declining and we're looking at the reasons behind their decline. The major reason for their declines in the countryside has been changes to agriculture because um, in many of our farm spaces now, if you go through them, there aren't many uh, places which are permanent, you know, so it'll be constant crops getting turned over, um, but also very few wildflower meadows left. So in our farm countryside, even though it's been good for us because we have more food to eat, that has been uh, to the detriment of butterflies and moths because the wildflowers and the habitats that they need have just disappeared from much of the countryside. Um, and then uh, other things just like um, urbanisation is having a role. Um, pesticides and herbicides are having a role too, but it's really hard to pin down uh, the, the size of the effect uh, from those uh, impacts. Now, it's kind of an overall, it's kind of a multi-headed almost situation that's affecting populations. I kind of think that if, if you're a farmer and you're using lots of nitrogen, then plants like nettles, et cetera, respond to nitrogen. That might be knocking out other pollinating plants. or So there's an effect, isn't there, through farming, basically, or even gardeners, to be fair. We can't get off the hook. Yeah, that's right. Um, and just as you point out with nettles there, like a lot of species uh, have caterpillars which eat nettles. So a lot of the common garden butterflies we see, like the small tortoiseshell and peacock, their caterpillars just eat nettles. So species like that are doing relatively well. They're quite generalist. They can feed upon a few different plants, things like nettles, which are found everywhere. Whereas in the countryside, uh, the, the species which require particular wildflowers, which might be low growing and can't compete with longer grass or nettles, those are the ones which are suffering most. And and it's just to say that point as well is that uh, one of the reasons why butterflies and moths um, are struggling more than other pollinators is because they have the caterpillar stage where the caterpillars will only eat certain food. So if 
those caterpillar plants disappear, then the species disappears as well. Whereas most uh, bumblebees, for example, are generalist. They can exploit a wide variety of different plants. So they don't have that same problem. But the, the caterpillar stage is vital, isn't it? So is it is it right to suggest that um, actually it's great that they get this this cafe, this long running cafe as different things flower, but the caterpillar stage is quite essential. Yeah, it's really their their populations can't increase unless you've got the the caterpillar stage uh, or the the food for the caterpillar stage now. By providing kind of fuel for the adults, you know, their sure, nectar is basically a source of sugar that does help those adults maybe fly around the countryside and find different places to live. But really, if you want to boost their numbers locally, you want to get the caterpillar plants. And there's a, a huge range of caterpillar plants. If you consider over two and a half thousand different species in the UK, that's an enormous range of plants that they can feed upon either some of them are are wild plants, so things like dandelions or, you know, maybe some plants regarded as weeds or even just long grass. Long grass can be a useful caterpillar plant for butterflies and moths. Um, so it's uh, making sure that you provide those too. That's interesting, isn't it? Because basically it's a, we can congratulate ourselves if we plant something and butterflies and moths turn up, but it's actually taking care of their breeding their ability to breed and increase their numbers is far more vital. And that's often the part of it we don't see that goes on in private. So having those, again, we touch on this idea of you don't have to have this immaculate garden, just leave a little bit where this stuff can happen. Yeah, that, that that's pretty important. I know it's a generalisation, but it almost looks like we're favouring some species by our actions. Some species are more endangered than others because we're providing food for some but lacking food for others. So it's not, I mean, I as an organic gardener working Obviously, for garden organic, I often encourage people to garden, but also not to be so fussy about it. So habitat piles, leaves and sticks. or um, And so you do, maybe letting go a little bit is a part of the message, do you think? You can still garden, but you can let go a bit. I think so. Um, and I am I love gardening, but I'm a lazy gardener as well, because I re- there's certain things which I don't take any joy in doing, like, say, too much weeding or, or things like that. And if the garden, to me, doesn't have to look like the inside of your house, well, most people's houses don't have weeds and stuff growing out of them. Maybe some people's do. It's not your house. It's a place that you share with nature and wild things in it. And that's the way that I approach it. You know, for example, in my flower beds, uh, I've got my nice kind of cultivated plants to the front. Behind those, then I let it grow a bit weedy. There's even some nettles right behind those. And then behind that again, I've got a, a native hedge. If the nettles start to come to the front of the border, then I'll weed them out because I don't want to get stung by them. But so long as they're stuck at the back, then that's okay. And I'll grow plants which can compete with those nettles so that they don't take over. So to me, I've got an organic approach as well. So I'll use plants to keep other plants in check and to have that wildness in a garden. But I think it is important that people do still garden, that they don't just let it go to rack and ruin. So it is about getting that balance. Otherwise, people won't enjoy being in their gardens if, if they can't access it and they can't kind of enjoy it and do something in it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you sometimes you get this impression you need to leave it all alone. But if I did that on my allotment, I'll just have horsetail and cook. So you have to intervene somewhere. But it's about consideration. But I think you've got the nail on the head there. It's a, it's a communal space. 
not necessarily a human communal space, but a natural human space. I, 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 mean, I will say at this point, you really need to look at the uh, Butterfly Conservation website because there's so much stuff on it. Um, I'm, I will ask Anthony to give you the address right at the end. But I love the idea of butterfly work parties. I know you have. So the, tell me a little bit, a bit about that. Yeah, so a work party is when we get a group of volunteers, often led by a staff member or somebody from one of our branches, and we go out and we take action to help butterflies and moths. Now, that might be going out to the countryside and, say, cutting gorse back if there's a problem with gorse or or winds, that, as we call them in Scotland, and taking over like a wildflower meadow. Then it might be taking care of, of those gorse uh, or even uh, sometimes, you know, scything a meadow so that it gets cut at the end of the summer and then the material can be taken off. But whatever needs done, we usually have a, like a merry band of people who go out and, uh, you know, we get to know one another. We work side by side and, and we get the work done and it, it has real results. So people, you know, we, we can see that the butterflies and moths respond to that action. So it's uh, and, and they're great fun, which is uh, which is always important to me. I love that. A merry band. That's such a great word, isn't it? And it kind of, I mean, it's interesting. We're talking about conservation of butterflies and moths, but we're also talking about human interaction and how it's like an adhesive, isn't it? When we get together and we're concerned about the wider world. Um, tell me a little bit about volunteers. What what sort of range do you have from the Lord on the Hill to the to the guy who maybe lives in a housing association? Is it right across the board? Yeah, well, well everything you can imagine, really. Um, it, it depends where we are in the country, you know, so some of our projects have been in kind of, I suppose, wealthy rural parts of of the countries, which are which maybe then attract the certain kinds of volunteers. But recently, we've been doing a lot more urban work. We've got a current project called Big City Butterflies, which is based in in right in the centre of urban London. You know, working in places like Tower Hamlets and Hackney and places like that, where our project officers are working with schools and community groups and also working with the parks. So I know that they've been doing some great work just in inner city London, uh, you know, and therefore involving more volunteers as well. And uh, in the last few years, I've been running some projects in Glasgow and Edinburgh, again, attracting a different type of volunteer. But I think it's important that we show people that they can be involved in our work, no matter no matter where they live or, or their background or circumstances. So again, that whole uh, um, social adhesive that what you're doing creates doesn't matter where, where you're from. You, it, it's interesting you were talking about, um, you mentioned gorse. I remember um, my time in Edinburgh, you go to Arthur's seat and it's covered in gorse. So you're looking at tackling the invasives, are you? Is there plants in there you can recommend that we put in or is it all about natives? If if it's a circumstance like that, if it's a wild environment, so say in somewhere in the countryside or even Hollywood Park, you could argue is kind of, uh, it's got a lot of natural features at that place and that there's a lot of wildflowers and things uh, we never sow non-native plants in the in the wider countryside or in kind of in wilder places uh, just because that's not uh, that's not really what we're about but in gardens people can do that because that really extends your season uh, a lot of the non-native plants though aren't any good for their caterpillars because our butterflies and moths have evolved to feed upon plants which are here when they're caterpillars but you can extend the nectar season by having things like, you know, sunflowers or rebecca or, you know, a, a lot of these kind of North American prairie plants, for example, which will go on flowering right through the year and uh, give you a good nectar for the adult stage. 
because it's interesting you mentioned uh, sunflowers and, and uh, Rebecca because I've got them on my allotment. I sow them in bands, and uh, and they are they're very full of bees, solo bees, butterflies. Now tell me, I'll, I'll look at the website. It's amazing. You need to give me the address, but there's a lot of stuff in there, isn't it? Leaflets, surveys, advice, newsletters. How do people get involved with you, Anthony? Yeah. So our main website is just butterfly conservation. Dot org, but then there's a special website for for wild spaces. It's a new website, so it's um wild-spaces.co.uk. And the great thing about that website is that if you go on there, you can kind of log where your garden is, um, and then you get all these different recommendations for things that you could grow uh, in your space that you have and then you'll also go on the mailing list so you'll get monthly recommendations about what you can grow and you can find out more about the species so you can click on different butterflies and see how you can attract them to your garden so it's a great kind of interactive tool if you want to find out a lot more well speaking uh, to our garden organic listeners who will be listening to you i have to say the website is just full of information and it is there's advice there there's newsletters if you really want to get involved there's surveys like you said at the beginning of the chat you're that response from people who get involve you have you seen a red admiral have you seen this have you, so you're getting some sort of response there's only one last sort of last thing i want to de- uh, ask you is that sometimes when i worked in schools and stuff we do like butterfly uh call them butterfly pies with a bit of old fruit in or i've heard about moth socks or is it just plants we should be planting or is there other um things we can add to attract these uh these beautiful creatures to our garden yeah, well, probably the first thing would be a kind of a change in behaviour. So you were just saying there about leaving fruit and things, for example. You know, if somebody's got fruit in the garden, you've got an apple tree or a plum tree. Sometimes the advice is to, whenever it falls, is to get rid of it, throw it away, you know, take it all away. But just leaving that fruit for the for the adult stage, you know, it's full of sugar um, that they can drink. That's a really good approach to it. Um, but there's a similar thing with just um, not tidying up too much, really, because the stage where they're most vulnerable is whenever they're like a, a chrysalis in the ground or in the leaves. A lot of species just make their make their cocoon in dead leaves but if we're taking that all away and burning it then you're actually just killing off the next generation so uh, i always encourage people to remember that even when we can't see them they're still around and so we need to act as if they're still there and you know not go disturbing them whenever uh whenever we think the place needs to tidy up i think the message there is obviously we we um we love to see them in action when they're adults and they're floating around and they're on our plants whatever but that that stage where they're under the radar is absolutely fundamental. So you can do little things, can't you? Maybe a pile of twigs with some leaves and a bit of moss in, leave that on the bottom of the allotment, the side of the It's really that simple, isn't it? It is. And um, people enjoy making these things called bug hotels. I think they used to be branded as bee hotels, but a lot of them are better just for bugs generally, you know, for, for invertebrates. And that's a really fun thing people can do. You know, you can make them as fancy as you like. You can make a four-story kind of tower, tower block or whatever, just using, you know, pallets and sticks and things like that but whatever you do um you'll find that things go and live in it so those caterpillars might crawl into it for the winter time they might make their chrysalises in it you'll also get ladybirds uh hibernating in spots like that too so you know you can make these kind of artificial structures but made with natural material like twigs um or logs with holes drilled in them and things like that all of these simulate what the creatures need in nature so it's a it's a kind of fun way of getting people involved in building something for wildlife that's a good community project that's a good park project brilliant school project i love things like we recently i was learning about rot holes you know when you get like a dead bit of log with a where a branch might have been and they, they're little ecosystems in themselves and uh one of those to uh, the back of a border in a garden or even in a side of a pot on a balcony that will work won't it 
It does, yeah. Um, so whenever I've I've got a flat in Sterling, so first floor flat, a tiny balcony. It's maybe ten, maybe twenty centimeters uh, deep, and maybe two meters along a long way. So really, not a lot to plant in. But I do plant in it anyway. I've worked it out over a number of years and, and how to do that. But one of the things I have as well is just these bug hotels. So I've kind of put together little wooden structures filled with with sticks and kind of chopped logs and things like that, where hopefully the caterpillars, which I see living on my balcony, I do see them. They do come there. Hopefully they, they will crawl into those for the winter and they'll kind of be protected in those spaces. So size is not an issue as long as you're creating the right environment. I am to a balcony gardener and uh, I'm amazed what turns up. I had a woodpecker on it this morning. I just think that don't uh, the listeners or people out there who think that you, you kind of need large space. Actually, it, nature thrives given the conditions. Anthony, it's an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I first personally feel inspired by what you've said. Hopefully our listeners will. Thank you so much for joining the uh, Garden Organic Podcast. I really appreciate it. Cheers, my friend. Yep, thanks, Chris. My pleasure. Time now for the post bag. Got some great questions this month. Um, I'm here with Chris Collins and Emma O'Neill. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Fiona. Hello, both. We've got some great questions this time. Uh, first of all, touching on hedging, good time of year to be thinking about hedging. I'd like to establish some wildlife-friendly hedging. Can you advise on which species I should choose and in what proportion? I have plenty of space and I'm happy for a high hedge, although it does need to be frost-tolerant as we're in northeast Scotland. Right, Emma, how would you start to answer this one? So I would go for native hedging. I would always go for whips because they're far easier to establish, plus they're far more cost-effective. And I generally grow uh, a mix of hedging, so things like hawthorn, acecompestry, hazel, bird cherry, lots of things that are going to give benefits to wildlife, good habitats, flowers and berries on them. They're ideal to be planted in the autumn between November and April. Okay, all right. And those will get quite high, those? Yes, they can get as tall as you like. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I have a slight problem with a very, very high hedge now. Actually, my neighbour has now got a very dark living room. Ah. (laughs) I'll lend you a ladder. (laughs) Um, Brilliant. Well, Chris, that's in a large scale setting. What about a small setting? So somebody who maybe wants to put a hedge um, in the front of their house. Well, that's it's easy enough. You're just doing something on a smaller scale. I agree with Emma's uh, choice of plant. The natives are definitely the best for wildlife. Um, I'd maybe use, if it was a smaller space, I might use feathers, which is like the next step up in the whips. So you have some natural growth, some side growth. So there. it's a bit longer on this. It's gone, yeah, it's gone a bit further. further. Yeah, it's a few small seasons old. If you've got rubbly, useless soil, then you're going to have to dig that out. It's going to be a bit of footwork there. So I'd actually get rid of that and bring in some decent soil decent compost make sure you improve that good thing about these natives is that a lot of them tend to be pioneers so they you don't it doesn't have to be really rich fertile soil they will establish quite quickly i always plant when i do a hedge i always plant what i call it the stagger so i grow maybe 25 centimeters 30 centimeters apart i put one one side and then come over to the other side of the trench so you, and then back again so you're kind of moving them on a stagger and that means they all lock together quickly but five meters is fine and you can get it as emma says as big as you want first thing i'd do is i'd knock the, the apical growth out so the growth on the top of the plant i'd prune to a node there right and that growing point there and that encourages the sides to shoot i do that three or four times over the first few seasons and that hedge will lock together and you've got a nice little hedge there that's not a problem at all if you've got a, a very short expanse 
How many different varieties would you plant in that? Oh, three or four would be all right. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Emma? Yeah, definitely, because they recommend if you're going for whips uh, to have between five and seven plants per metre. So that's quite a decent amount. Yeah, so you could mix it up and you could you could have several different species because I yeah. think that's the, the message here is we're, we're all all for mixed native hedges. Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, you could even throw a bit of holly in there as well for a bit of evergreen. That's a, yeah. that's a native. So you've got... The idea is, is that little hedge, whether it's five beers or a big one that like we've got you know, surrounding our little garden here, the garden here, is, uh, is you want those little birds nested in it and then all the other wildlife follow. So you create that little ecosystem yeah. that's, uh, that's going to work. I will say as well, if you, um, if you haven't got a garden at all and you you want to get the little birds in something like a coppiced hazel or birch or um, a hornbeam put that in a big old pot plant it in make sure you coppice it so you cut it down quite low let it multi-shoot that's perfect for little birds as well even in a pot you can even get as, as long as you're watering and feeding obviously as long as you're giving it the husbandry that's required you can have a little i'd love the idea of a coppiced hornbeam just outside my office window but the little birds coming in on the feeders perfect yeah wonderful i mean obviously in a pot you've got to look after it but equally, you know, it just means everybody can do wildlife-friendly hedging. That's yeah. amazing. Right, we are revisiting leeks. We all love them, and a lot of people have a lot of questions about them. But this time, this is an interesting dilemma. I'm very disappointed with my leek crop this year. The stems have been attacked by leek moth. So only about half of each plant is edible. The plants have been covered with EnviroMesh from when the seeds were first sown and they were only exposed on the day I transplanted them. However, I do put all the outside leaves and infected leaf plants on the compost heap. Do you think that that's where the pest came from? Goodness me, that's a long story here. Um, Emma, how do you identify it actually? Well, they're quite similar to the Allium leaf miner, but the leek moths are creamy white and they've got brown heads and legs, whereas the Allium leaf miner is all white and no leg. They do very similar damage. And here at the demonstration garden, all of my leeks got took this year, so we ended up with none at all. The EnviroMesh is the way to go. However, you cannot compost the infected leaves. They definitely have come back in on that. That's been the issue there. And then presumably it then takes a couple of generations or a couple of summers or seasons it's, to then yeah, and start again. It will, and you, de- you need to obviously crop rotate. But again, if you've been using then that compost with the infected material in, I mean, I hate to say it, but I would probably leave off at least a year yeah. and then go again on a different bed. Yes, okay. Okay, but the EnviroMesh, um, generally, that should be, if you have a sort of a clean patch to start with, then the EnviroMesh should be enough protection to keep off the leaf moth. It should be. I mean, obviously, nothing is infallible and you need to be vigilant, as you always do with all veg growing. They tend to make an appearance between April to October. They do have some natural predators, which are ground and rove beetles. So if you can get sort of a beetle bank somewhere in your garden to encourage beetles in, that would also help. But netting really is the only solution. Okay, and it's getting worse, isn't it? It is. It's getting more prevalent, to be honest. So it was mainly in the south of England, and it is now starting to march on. Right, well, let's go into the greenhouse now. So, a good question here. I've always grown tomatoes and cucumbers successfully in grow bags in the greenhouse. 
However, next year I'm considering trialling not using grow bags. The soil in the greenhouse is poor. Can you advise on the best way to improve it? So, Chris, I'm going to come to you first. I really identify with this question. I do have a, a soil bed in my greenhouse and I've had a couple of sort of decent salad crops off it, but it's not good soil, I have to be honest. You know, how would you go about improving soil that basically gets no rainwater, you know, it's it's all artificial, isn't it? How, how would you pretty, do that? Pretty much like I would any, any sort of improvement, to be honest with you, I'd be looking to add organic matter. You could maybe get well-rotted manure, you could buy that bank, or you can maybe get that locally. Maybe you get it locally is better because you're more known to its source, it might like yes. to be organic. Uh, but that's obviously brilliant at soil improvement. Or maybe you've got a compost bin with some of that lovely old compost gold. You can use that. You might want to um, some, add some other stuff. So you might want to put your compost in and then add a bit of bucking 14 pellet to it to make sure. Maybe add some comfy leaves in a trench so it breaks down and improves the soil. So just the usual methods we, we always say about improving soil apply to that greenhouse as well. I will say I prefer a nice deep soil to a grow bag because I think I like at least 30 centimetres because it gets the roots down. I think you get healthier plants. But old, grow bags are traditional. All the old boys on the parks used to use them. But just look at improving that soil. You might want to add... Um, Kitchen waste or um, compost that hasn't rotted down quite yet. Maybe add that in the autumn and let that rot down over the winter and then you've got ready, you're ready to go in the spring. But yeah, compost, organic matter, basically maybe subsidise it with a bit of uh, organic fertiliser as well. Yeah, I do love the idea of comfrey pellets. I hadn't even thought of that. That's a great idea. You can almost kind of do a bit of a cocktail, a bit of a mix, can't you? You know, some of you, some of your kitchen, dig a bit of a trench, some of your kitchen waste, some comfrey pellets... Uh, you know, top it up with, with whatever soil you've got yeah, lying on, around. On, on my balcony, comfrey pellets are the key for me. That's why I'm using containers. So in a little way, like you described, it's inside, so there's not rain going on it. There's not those natural elements. So, you know, to, to, to subsidise it like that and also keep it moisture, treat it like a bit of a container, a big container, and then keep it healthy and you'll get good crops. Yeah, OK, great tip there. Emma, have you ever used grow bags? No, personally, I haven't. So um, when I saw this question come in, I did go out and chat to my volunteers to see exactly why they would use them. It does mainly seem to be convenience that obviously if you don't have a bed in your greenhouse, also you can manoeuvre them around. And of course, they come ready so you just slip the bag, plant them in. They've already got some nutrient content to them. Uh, but with anything, you know, whether it's in the ground or the, the grow bag, you are going to have to feed those particular type of crops they're talking about very regularly and yeah. get your watering regime right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very, very dependent on that, I suppose. I mean, you can get peat-free um, grow bags now. Um, and I've used them in the past. Um, sometimes I, I've um, I've taken the soil out of the grow bag and put it into a pot. But other times, you know, there is that thing where if you just want maybe a a, bit, a tomato plant outside the back door, you can just you know yeah, grow it's back a down on a slab yeah. and you don't have to worry about it. You know, and the good thing convenient. is when that's finished, add it to your compost heap or use it as a bit of a mulch. Don't don't just ditch it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, use it and reuse it all the way through. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Great. Well, terrific questions this month. Thanks ever so much, Emma and Chris. Thank you, Thank Fiona. You. So that's it for another episode and another year. Thank you so much for joining us as we chat about organic gardening every month. Hopefully you've picked up a few tips along the way to help with your own growing. Meanwhile, if you'd like to support us, until December the 5th, all donations to the charity will be doubled as part of a campaign called The Big Give. You can find out more on our website, gardenorganic.org.uk. 
So all that's left for me to do is to thank our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition and Kevin McLeod for the music and to wish you a very happy Christmas.